turn to the book of Hebrews. We're in a series that we've entitled Jesus, the Greatest of All Time. And we come to a passage of scripture that, to be quite honest with you, is pretty deep. It's pretty somber. It's, it's no doubt sobering uh, for anyone who reads it. And it's a difficult passage of scripture. And uh, as we uh, go through this, I'm going to want to make sure that we are following along as the writer has. But for those who haven't been with us, we've been going verse by verse for some time now, since the early part of the fall, uh, looking at this letter that was written to a group of first century Jewish Christians who had left Judaism and all of the rituals and regulations and had gotten into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he has been teaching them that Jesus is the greatest of all time, and he has been showing them point by point, uh, place by place, how Jesus is greater than anything that they've come into contact with. And as a point of reference, that's what our hope and prayer is in this series, that all of us would come to a place that we would recognize that not only that Jesus is the greatest of all time, but that we need him each and every hour for the joy, the hope, and the uh, trust that we need in a God who says he saves us. And so with that, would you uh, take a moment and bow with me as we ask for God's blessing on our time. Father God, we come before you, and I ask for your blessing over this morning. You've been so good to us already in our first service uh, thank you so much for uh, our worship teams and, and our ushers and greeters, our AV team, Lord, uh, for those teaching our kids in the other building now, Lord, for the ministry that happens throughout the week, the dozens of small groups that are happening, our student ministries, Lord, there's so much going on each and every day, and I pray that it wouldn't just be a place of busyness, but it would serve as a place of blessing, and even more than that, Lord, that it would serve as a way to honor you in all that we say and do. Now, Lord, we come to a passage of scripture that is difficult to hear. You reveal things about yourself that, quite frankly, even in the church today is not talked about very often. I thank you for a church that longs to go line by line, verse by verse through your words, even when we hit the tough passages. And I pray, Lord, amidst this tough passage, that I might serve as a way to not only bless the hearer, but point each of us uh, to Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, and I pray that my words would be your words, and we ask now for your blessing in your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We live in a world full of warnings. There are warning signs all around us, uh, warning signs that uh, will tell us of danger ahead. Notice uh, one of the signs I have here warning us of, of curves. That could be symbolic and it could be uh, financial or emotional or relational curves, or it could just be right on the road you're driving and there are curves and you need to decrease your speed. Our cars give us warnings. We have those little lights that begin to flash on our dashboard, and they tell us that things are not as they seem. Even though the car seems to be driving the way it needs to, those warnings say something isn't quite right. Now, can I tell you, especially when it comes to cars, there are certain warnings that I tend to not worry about. In fact, this one with the tire, I've had that on my car for years and I haven't done anything with it. And so it is with warnings. Warnings are only good 
if we heed what they're warning us about and doing something about it. Now, let's just face it. Sometimes there are some weird warnings out there. Notice this one for a swimming pool. Zero feet, no diving. Really? All right. For the per- and here's the funny thing. You know someone didn't heed that, right? And that's why they had it. This warning I thought was really great. It said the following. Danger, do not touch. Not only will this kill you, but it will hurt the whole time you're dying. Now, that's a good warning, right? That's a good one. There are warnings in our lives. And, and let's just face it, a warning really isn't known until we see someone not heed it and the peril that comes. Because quite frankly, if you follow the warnings, your life is pretty uneventful. That first warning sign that I gave you, danger curves ahead, was a warning that the professional golfer Tiger Woods saw no less than five times just a couple weeks ago. And instead of heeding those warnings, he drove at a high rate of speed and he crashed, probably ending his career as a golfer. And and the the men that came upon it, uh, the sheriff's department said, this isn't the first time that's happened. In fact, they've added warning signs Because people find themselves blowing by it in accidents upon accidents. Tiger wasn't the first one to crash on that stretch of roadway. Well, just as it is in the traffic world, in the driving world, and just for that matter, the world altogether, the Bible has all kinds of warnings. In fact, the book of Hebrews has five warnings in it, and we've addressed three of them already. And what we learn is, is that there are some things that we need to be concerned about in our spiritual life. And God in his grace and love and yes, even his mercy has put out these warning signs and saying danger ahead. Change what you're doing. Stop doing these things and start doing these things in order that that warning won't become a reality in your life. Before us this morning, we come to that fourth warning, by far the most severe of the warnings in all of the book of Hebrews. And what we need to do is ask the question, what is the warning saying? Who is it saying it to? Because if we misapply or misunderstand this passage, what will happen is the wrong people will leave all broken up and hurting for all the wrong reasons, and those who need to hear it walk out feeling like nobody even said a word to them. And so we need to make sure we do this well. And so what I want to do is a little different than I normally go through a text. And what I want to do is I want to ask some questions. And in asking the questions of the text, I want to draw out the answers so that we know what's being talked about, who's being talked to, and what our application from this text is. Now all of this, after our time together, will lead us to a time of communion, which I think is perfect uh, as a way to end our time in the word. And so let's look at our passage. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in t- verse 26 and going through verse 39. You, if you've got it on your phone, if you've got a physical copy of the scriptures in front of you, if you want uh, to use one, we've got uh, Bibles in the carts right by the doorways. If you need to grab one, you can use that today. But let's go ahead and let's turn to our uh, passage and let's understand this very difficult passage, but one I think that is so apropos for us today. And so let's look at the text. Four, 
If we go on sinning deliberately after the receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? But, but, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's jump into this, and let's start asking questions about this warning. First of all, the first question we have to ask is, because we want to apply this text rightly, is who is he talking to? Or who is he talking about? In our passage, there are two groups of people that the writer wants to speak to. The first group, and if you underline and and, uh, make notes in your Bible, this would be a great note for you because it will help you as you come back to this passage. The first group he's talking to is in verses 26 through 31. Verses 26 through 31. Make a line there or maybe a, a bracket to, to know that. Then the second group it starts in verse 32 and ends in verse 39. Understanding that he's talking about two groups of people is tantamount for you and I to understand this passage. Because you may be a follower of Jesus Christ and, and striving to seek and, and honor him in all that you say and do. And then you read this passage and you hear about those who are deliberately sinning and you start getting some uh, gymnastics going in your head and saying, well, I sinned deliberately and now I've lost my salvation, which the Bible doesn't say you can have happen to you. And so we've got to know and understand what this passage is saying and to whom it's saying it to. So group number one, who's he talking to? I want to define them as the deserters, the deserters. For some time now, the writer has been speaking to the faithful in his midst. He's been telling them about Jesus. And as he has preached about Jesus, he has no doubt heard in this letter people amening what has been affirmed. That Jesus is the great high priest, the people would say amen. That Jesus is the sacrifice for sins, the people would say amen. He would say these things about Jesus and the chorus of people would say amen. 
But starting in verse 25 of chapter 10, he begins to reference a different group. Notice, in, let's start in verse 24. And let us, he's telling, you know, all of us, the faithful ones, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now he goes on, he says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Now notice what he says in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of, finish the sentence for me, some. Do you see the change? He's been saying, let us, let us, let's do this thing, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I want you to do as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ is not neglect the assembling or the gathering together as is the habit of some. There's this other group of people who have deserted the gathering together of God's people and they are now outside of us. So what's up with those people? The writer of Hebrews has heard that so-and-so, whether it's Bob and, and Rhonda, they were attending church for a long time. It seemed like they were getting connected. It seemed like they loved Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they started missing a Sunday or two. They stopped missing midweek Bible study. They stopped uh, coming to the prayer times together or the fellowship times. And, and there were all kinds of excuses. And then after a while, they hadn't seen Bob and Rhonda for a long time. And now word had gotten out. It's been a year or so now. Bob and Rhonda not only are not attending, but now word on the street is that they're antithetical. They're antagonistic to the cause of Christ. What? happened? Well, the first step was they began to neglect attending. And this downward spiral began to take place. The Bible calls this apostasy. Apostasy. And apostasy is the intentional falling away or withdrawal or defection from Christ and his people. These people had at some point moved close to Jesus Christ they even maybe were convicted of some sins. They maybe even professed Christ. They may have even gotten baptized. But that interest in Christ, that life in Christ didn't take root. The Bible talks about this when Jesus talks about the parable of the, the seeds or the sower. He talks about a seed falling on rocky ground and never, never taking root. And it just kind of blows away. It gets trampled upon and it doesn't do what seeds are to do. And that is to be planted and to spring up into the flower or the uh, fruit bearing tree that it was supposed to be. These individuals never get there. So they hang around. They, they like what's happening within the church. They like some of the things that uh, Jesus is talking about or what the relationship with Jesus may have meant for them. But something happened. Now, the text tells us in, chap in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, that difficult times had come. And so no doubt what's happening is, is these deserters had run into difficult times and they gave up on Jesus. Maybe they thought by, by, by turning to Jesus, their life would be better. Their marriage would be better. Their jobs would be better. That everything would be 
better. And in some ways, Jesus does make your marriage, your life, your, your job better, but not in the way that many times we wish and hope it would. Many times not in the temporal ways we wish it would. And so they gave up on Jesus. Now there are a couple examples of apostates in the Bible. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy about a guy who seemingly had done some really great things for the faith. His name was Demas, but he had abandoned the faith and left the faith altogether. And the, if you will, the obituary of his spiritual life said that Demas loved the present world. That is, he fell in love with what the world was offering, and he fell in, out of love with Jesus, and Paul says he is a deserter. But the most quintessential portrait of an apostate is one that we many times forget about, even though he's right in front of us, and that's the person of Judas, Judas who walked with Jesus, Judas who talked with Jesus, Judas who was a part of, listen to me, the greatest single small group ever man could ever be a part of. He had the best small group leader. You may say my leader's average, right? My small group leader's in this service. Sorry, Travis. But you're no Jesus. You're right there. I see you. Okay? That small group's not going to be fun this week. Um, He had the best small group leader. He had the best mentor. He had the best teacher. And Judas, it never connected. For Judas, it never became real. And when the going got tough, when the rubber was to meet the road, Judas took off. This is what is going on in the book of Hebrews. We have this group of people. Now you say, were they just visitors and this guy's going off on them? No, because it says words that we would almost start to ascribe to Christians. In the text it says that they have uh, spurned the Son of God, verse 29. They've profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, So there's ability to be blessed, that's how he's using the word sanctified, blessed by the things of God without letting them burden you to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. Some maybe in this place is a big room with lots of people, and I don't want to presume upon anything, but I'm going to assume that some are here for a lot of reasons and it ain't Jesus. That some of you are here, you love the gathering, You love the worship team. You love the the music that's sung. Maybe you even like listening to me talk. I know there's not a lot of you out there, but maybe that's it. Or maybe you're here because your parents tell you you have to be here. Maybe you're here because you know your spouse likes that, and to make the happy spouse, you, you sacrifice an hour and 10 minutes each Sunday to be a part of this. Maybe you're here because you grew up and you were told that To go to church means you'll get to heaven, and so you're just putting in your time because there's the greatest timeshare opportunity later in eternity, and you don't want to hedge your bets. Whatever your reason is, if it isn't Jesus, then you may find yourself in this place. You may find yourself, now that's not for me to say, I can just kind of set the table, and you have to ask yourself the question, is this talking to me? Could it be that when I get to heaven and stand before God, that I might be those that Matthew 7, 21, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, 
that many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, I did this for you. Lord, Lord, I did that for you. And Jesus says, depart, depart from me. I never knew you. Could that be said of you? Maybe you're a deserter this morning and you don't even know it. Well, there's a second group. And the second group of people are what I want to call the dedicated. Now, these people in and of themselves are no better than the deserters, but they have grabbed a hold of the grace and mercy of God. They sat in the same room as the deserter, but something spiritual happened. It's like the 11. They weren't perfect. If you were to put Judas up against the other 11 during the time of the, uh, time of the disciples, Judas would have graded pretty well. In fact, they're kind of shocked, and they're wondering when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and, and all of them are kind of like, oh, could it be mean? Well, maybe it's him, maybe it's him. But it doesn't seem to give the picture that everybody pointed to Judas. So these dedicated people, you, you may not be able to see it in, in and of themselves, but notice a couple things about these people. First of all, the phraseology that tells us there's two groups of people, verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 32 starts with the word but. There's a contrast. Everything I've said about this group of people, now I want to talk about this group of people and I want to create a contrast. And so there's this clause in the text that says, okay, there's a break. Notice also a couple things. There's a tone change from verse 26 to 31 and then 32 through 39. Doom and gloom is the first part of the passage. There's nothing. There's not a silver lining to be found. But in verses 32 through 39, it's all sunshine and, 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 and blessing, even amidst the most difficult of trials. Notice the first group gets called out, and the second group gets encouraged. It's told to be confident. And so <clears throat> we've got these two groups of people and we have to ask this morning, which one am I a part of? Now the text is gonna help us with this. So let's ask the second question. For these deserters, where did things go awry? Where did things go awry? If they were a part of the church and now aren't a part of the church, what happened? How, how did they fall away, and what did that fall look like? Did they get mad at the church and just get out in a huff, or did something happen? Write this down and fill in the blanks that are before you. The road to apostasy is not done in a single step, but is a slow and subtle journey away from God. It isn't done in one step, but it is slow and at times it is subtle. And I've seen it happen in the church where I'll remember somebody that used to hang around for a while but little and little went away and then it's been years and it's like, what happened to those people? Where'd they go? What, what took place? No doubt you've had that happen. You saw them all the time and then little by little, but, but they've done more than that. And it's not, I'm not talking about, just as a way of clarification, I'm not talking about people who have made a decision to leave a church and, and to go join another Bible-believing church. This is not, that's not the deserters we're talking about. Those are people that are being led by the Spirit to make decisions that are best for them and their families and their walk for God. But these people just have walked away 
from the faith. And then what you will find out is maybe you're on social media and you find out that they're antagonistic now to the things of God. And so where did they go awry? Now, the writer has been talking about this. So I don't want you to think, maybe you've come in today right in the middle of our series in the book of Hebrews. Well, that's kind of jerky for the writer to call out people. Well, he's been warning them the entire time. Stay in the book of Hebrews, but go back to the beginning. And let's start looking at some of the warnings. First of all, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Warning number one. So I want you to envision you're driving and there's some difficult roads ahead and I want you to see these as warning posts. Again, if you write in your Bibles, if you use that kind of as a textbook, you might be good to write number one, warning number one. It's verse one. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He goes on in verse three. How can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So the first warning is don't drift away. A drift isn't a hard right turn. It's a slow drifting. I'm teaching my son Joshua how to drive right now. And I never have had him take the car and veer it into the ditch. But I do get worried that he drifts a little bit. Now a little drift maybe is okay for a little moment, but as a parent, Uh, as oncoming traffic is coming, how dangerous can drifting be? Even just a little drift can be disastrous for the driver and the people in the car. So it is spiritually. So he says, warning sign number one, don't drift away. Go a couple chapters over and let's look at uh, what happens next. They drift a little bit. Now they start doubting Christ and his word. Uh, Notice uh, verse, uh, uh, chapter four, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Wait a minute here. I'm giving you the wrong passage. Hold on a second here. I'm drifting away from my notes. (laughs) Chapter 3, thank you, verse 12. See, there's always help in the crowd. Chapter 3, verse 12. Notice what he says. Warning number 2. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. We're not drifting anymore. Now we're, we're in the ditch. We're falling away from the living God. How do we fix that? We exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is going to cause us not only to drift, but to fall off into the ditch. Now we go to chapter five. We go to chapter five. And notice verse 11, here's another warning. In fact, my Bible has warning against apostasy. This is warning number three. About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So God speaks and all you hear is womp, 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 womp. It's not making any sense. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you Again, the principles of the oracles of God. And he goes on and continues to exhort them in that way. So we've drifted away. We've doubted Christ. Now we've come dull to the teaching of God's word. And now in chapter 10, he warns us once again against despising Christ. And so they have wandered away. This isn't the first time this has happened. In fact, John tells the church in 1 John chapter 2, Verse 19, he says the following. Notice on the screen here. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not, they, that they all are not of us. That's a hard passage to read there. So this happens. And if it's happening in John's day, if it's happening in the writer of, of Hebrews' day, surely it's happening here. So let me ask you this morning, people, are you heeding the warning signs? Are you making sure in your walk with God you are not drifting or becoming dull or despising the things of God? Now, what we see in the text is God gets angry. And that's my third question. Why is God so angry? Well, the text tells us that he's angry for a couple different reasons. Just to give you an idea, look at verses 26 through 31 and notice the words. Just kind of start following along with me some of the words that you see. Fear, fury, consuming the adversaries, dies without mercy, worse punishment, outraged, vengeance, Now, some will say, this is Old Testament God. But wait a minute, we're in the middle of the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not one God in the Old Testament and one God in the New Testament. He is the same God throughout the Testament. He's been the same God throughout eternity. And this is what we learn about God. Now, why is God so angry? Notice at the beginning of the passage For if we go on sinning deliberately, in the original Greek language of which this was written, it starts with the phrase sinning deliberately or deliberately sinning as the first two words in the Greek language to put it as an emphasis. What were these people doing? They were willfully and continually sinning. They were sinning on purpose. Now right away you say time out. I sinned this last week. Let's just show of hands. How many of you willfully and deliberately sinned this week? Show of hands, come on. Okay, for you who didn't raise your hand, you're lying and you did it deliberately. Okay? Isn't all sin in many ways deliberate? Maybe it's not all premeditated, it happens in the moment, but for the Christian, isn't all sin? We know things are sinful. The things I fall to, in fact, not even me, I'm not a good example of it. The Apostle Paul says, the things I shouldn't do, I do, and the things I should do, I don't do. So if he struggled with it, then we know Tim does, and if Tim does, surely you do. And so we're all sinning, and so now we read this as a child of God, and I'm deliberately sinning. And I've received the knowledge of the truth, and now there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And you know what happens after you read that and that interpretation? You take a big swallow and you're like, oh boy, maybe I'm not saved. Or maybe I was saved and now I'm not saved. And the Bible tells us that once we're saved, we are always saved. And so we need to separate these individuals because we start to impugn things about God and his children, things that aren't for his children. And so what were these individuals doing? How do we know that we are not the ones sinning 
deliberately. That phrase there is so important. Write this passage down, Numbers 1530. Remember, the author loves the Old Testament, and he loves to cite the Old Testament, and in doing so, without, without citing it, he's citing it. And here's what he's saying. What this is, in Numbers 1530, is what was called in the Old Testament law, sins of defiance, or maybe a better phrase, sins of treason, okay? And so these sins of defiance or sins of treason, there was no sacrifice. If you were a treasonous person in the, in the nation of Israel, you would die, the text says, on the word of two or three witnesses. You cannot do acts of treason against God or God's people in the Old Testament and not die for it. And so what this individual says is that this willful Deliberate sinning literally means to go on sinning and knowingly renounce the faith by repudiating Christ's sacrifice for him. Another person said it's the total defection from the faith in Christ as Savior. Another commentary said it's a total outright rebellion to Jesus Christ and his word. One other commentator says it's high-handed it's high-handed rebellion. You're like, what, what do you mean high-handed rebellion? And I don't mean this in a crass way at all, but, but in our modern vernacular, it's giving the middle finger to God. That's what's happening. That's the kind of rebellion. And the reason why I tell you, Christian, that is that that's probably not where you're sinning. I know that's not where I'm sinning. My sin, yes, is willful. Yes, it's deliberate. But it is because I'm a broken and flawed individual. And when it happens, the conviction of the sin falls upon me. And I say, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy. I, I can't believe you're such a good God that you would love me amidst these issues that keep rearing their ugly head. For many of us, this is not where we're at. Now, the reason why they're there is because they followed Christ under the wrong pretenses. Again, they thought Jesus was gonna make life better. And when he didn't, they got angry. They got upset. They had buyer's remorse. And so they walk away. Well, what do they do? Verse 29 gives us three sins. I'll go through these quickly, but write these down. The three sins that these rebels, these treacherous and treasonous people did was number one, they rendered Christ unworthy. It says in one translation, I like it, it's probably closer to what it means here, they trampled the Son of God underfoot. The ESV uh, says the following. It says that we have spurned the Son of God. But let's sit with this trampled, the Son of God underfoot. Years ago, after the war in Iraq, George W. Bush was standing with, behind podiums, right next to each other in a press room in Baghdad, next to the president of Iraq. And as George W. Bush was answering questions from Iraqi press, all of a sudden from the back of the room, do you remember what I'm gonna say? A shoe came flying at the president. Now, I got to hand it to, to, to good old W. He, with matrix-like reflexes, moved, and it missed. And then another shoe came. And they were like, what in the world? In the Middle Eastern culture, to take your shoe and to throw it at someone means you are less than garbage. 
That's why when Saddam Hussein's statues came down, you saw people taking off their shoe and hitting the statue's face with their shoe. They're spitting at, they're defiling the person of Saddam Hussein. They hated him so much. They wanted him to know he was worse than garbage. He was less than dirt. This is what these individuals have done with Jesus. They have rendered Christ unworthy. He means nothing to them. They've trampled on uh, him because he's less than trash. Number two, they refused salvation. They profaned the blood. That is, they heard the gospel, and instead of reverence and fear, instead of announcing to themselves and the world, Jesus is the greatest of all time, they said Jesus is, not, is, is just like everyone else. He's just a common man. And so the blood that you're talking about that was spilled, that you make a big deal about, it's nothing. In fact, it's blood like anybody else's. Literally what's being said is, and the best way to do this is to show some of the architecture of this place. Look to the crosses we've got on the side. What they're saying of Jesus is, he was no different than the two thieves that died next to him. That's who he is. He was just a criminal. And we, we, we sterilize this and you'll talk with people and you'll say, what do you think of Jesus? I thought he was a good man. He was a good teacher. Listen, that may sound good if you talk about Tim, but when you talk about Jesus, you reduce him down to something that his in, it would, would make God indignant. He isn't just an ordinary person. He isn't just a good teacher. He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And so they said, man, he's nothing different. Notice finally in there, he, they reject the Holy Spirit. They reject the Holy Spirit. That is, they are outraged. They outrage the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they reject what he does. The Holy Spirit leads in truth, guides in truth, and convicts in sin. And they say, I don't want any of that. Now let's just stop. Time out for a second. Who is the writer talking about? Yes, he's talking about deserters. But could these three things not be said of every unbeliever in the world? If you are not making Jesus the greatest of all time, both in word and deed, then these things could be said of you. Now, okay, they're said of us. Well, what happens? Notice there's no plan B. If you reject Jesus, if you turn away from the gospel, the only thing you should expect, the text says, I mean, it's very clear, is you should have a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He's talking about hell. And he ends this part of the passage saying, it is a fearful thing. It should scare the daylights out of you to fall into the hands of a living God. A revival broke out in colonial America because of one sermon preached in Massachusetts called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And with the fear of which this man preached it, not in some great bombastic way, they said it was monotone. He just read the text of it. It caught people by storm because they were brought face to face with their sin and the need for Jesus Christ. And today I ask you, are you trusting in anything else? Because if you are, listen to me, the only thing you can expect is a fearful expectation of the fiery and fury of hell for all eternity. So turn to Jesus. 
Trust in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus because there is no second way. There's no other opportunity. It is Jesus or else. And that's why this church says Jesus is the greatest of all time because the adversaries of God who come by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus says, come and I will make you a part of my family. What incredible words. So one final question that we have to ask this morning. So what do we do with this scary admonition? Oh my goodness. This is scary stuff. Remember, not all warnings are for you. There are a lot of people that traveled the roadway that Tiger Woods did, and they affirmed or adhered to the warnings, and they drove the speed limit, and they didn't careen off into this ditch. They didn't nearly lose their lives. And so the question is, for many of you, you're not deserters. You're dedicated to your walk with Christ. It's not perfect. And when you sin, you confess your sin, and God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and you are encouraged by others to spur you on towards love and good works. So what do we do? Verses 32 through 39, you'll need to study this a little more on your own, but a couple truths that come. Number one, in verse 34, we have something better. So maybe it seems like the sinners are winning the day. Maybe it seems like the deserters got a better life than you do. They may for the time being, but verse 34 says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is promised? Notice verse 34, that you have a better possession and an abiding one coming your way. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage and he says, the the holy one, the coming one, will come and not delay. And so, yeah, maybe life isn't what you want it to be. Maybe it seems like the, uh, the enemies of God are victorious and the faithful of God are defeated, but there's a day coming when we will be vindicated for our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what an awesome day that will be. But until then, in the meantime, what do we do? Write these three things down, and they are just application for us to think through and pray through. But one of the things, number one, is we can't let trials make us spiritually bitter. We have to use them to make us spiritually better. So he lists all of these issues and struggles that are going on in their world. Notice in verses 32, once they were enlightened, they endured hard struggle with sufferings. When you add hard struggle with sufferings, that means it's really bad. And then he goes on. They were publicly exposed to reproach. That is, they were being mocked and and verbally abused. Affliction means they were being physically abused. And they were partners with those so treated. So maybe they didn't get beat up, but maybe their spouse did. Maybe their kids did. Maybe their their, uh, friends did. Their church members did. And then they had compassion on those in prison, which means some were imprisoned. And then it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Because people knew they were Christians. And maybe they knew that Christians wouldn't retaliate and fight back. And so they started stealing their stuff. Knowing that Jesus said, if someone takes your uh, uh, robe or garment, give them your tunic as well. So they're like, yeah, let's just, let's just, these gluttons for punishment, let's take their stuff. Let's see if it's real. And they did so with great joy. And they did it because they knew the temporal things of life weren't the real important things. So these are trials. 
And these trials for the dedicated made them better, not bitter. That's hard to do when trials come. For the Badals, this last week and this last couple days has been hard. So, and it's first world problems, but it's hard nonetheless. So I've told you a lot about my boys and their sports. Well, my oldest son Noah, a senior in high school, broke his ankle and his foot in one of his last basketball games. So senior year, he's sitting at home right now. His foot's pretty swollen. And I told him last night, we got to talk. We got to talk because I know he's devastated. And this is it. This is what we're preaching in the Badal house. Trials are going to come. And some are going to be big and some are going to be small, but they're trials nonetheless. And the question is, as followers of Christ, will it make us better or will it make us bitter? God wants us to have endurance to make us better. That's the first takeaway. Second takeaway, get serious about your growth. God's not playing games. The phrase that comes to mind is either you're progressing or regressing in the Christian walk. So what are you doing right now? Were you stronger six months ago in your faith or a year ago? Be careful. Are you wandering away? Are you drifting away? God doesn't play games. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I know I'm a believer. I'm assured of that. Well, God, we're going to see in chapter 12, brings discipline on his children. And that discipline at times can hurt. It can be filled with great sorrow and even great pain. And he does it to make us better. So let's teach ourselves the lessons before God has to teach us the lessons, even as followers of Christ. Number three. The end of this passage says that when we make Christ a priority, we can live in peace. He says in verse 39, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let me ask you this morning, what group are you a part of? Are you a deserter? Get right with God before it's too late because the only thing you've got going on the road ahead of you is a fearful fury of fire and judgment. Turn and trust Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, don't leave this place without talking to myself or one of our ushers or greeters or the person standing next to you. Don't leave your pew or your seat until you say, someone show me how not to experience the fury of God and we're gonna help you and we're gonna show you what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then today is a great day to reflect and re-examine and ask the question, am I playing games with a holy God? Am I living as I'm called to? And what better day to do that than when we partake of communion? The remembrance of the shedding of Jesus' blood. And so we're gonna turn and we're gonna pivot to communion here. And during this time, I want you to start asking yourself some real serious questions. Am I living as I'm supposed to? Or am I doing what these deserters were doing? Am I finding myself rejecting the Holy Spirit? Am I finding myself refusing the daily gift of salvation? Am I rendering Christ unworthy? And to reflect on those things and to ask those questions in between you and God, Let God, the Spirit, speak to you and lead you. And as sins come up, you you share those sins with the Lord and say, yes, I know, Lord, and I'm in agreement. That's a sin. I was in rebellion against you. Please forgive me as you promise you will. Uh, Forgive me of that sin. 
And maybe if I've wronged somebody, Lord, as my word states, I am going to go and I'm going to go address that person. We're going to make things right for as far as it depends on me. I'm going to live at peace with all people. And so let us take some time at the end of this service, as the worship team plays underneath us, that we reflect and examine what's going on in our lives so that we can, as Jesus said, proclaim his death until he comes. Let's go to prayer.